Wow. Is this on? Okay. Well, uh, what else? I'm trying. How do you follow 19 years of Carl and Jesse? That's a that's pretty difficult here. Uh, you know. Uh, it's good to be with you guys. You know, uh, this is my second time in the saddle after taking seven months off of talking in front of anyone. And that, before that, there was over 20 years of at least doing it twice a month. So that's, uh, wow. So I'm, bear with me. But hey, if in any point I'm unclear, uh, please afterwards come and tell me like, hey, this didn't make any sense or that didn't make any sense. Now, by the way, if you disagree with me but understand what I'm saying, that's just fine. You know, I'm not trying to coerce everyone to think with the unimind here, all right? So I'm not talking about if I failed to strong arm you into agreeing with me, but if I'm just unclear because I'm trying to grow in that area. Is that cool? But, but once again, if, if you just disagree with me, that's, that's cool. Well, I, I don't necessarily think it's cool because I think my way is more fun. But you, you get what I'm saying, right? Um, well, titled today's message, How to Stop Being a Judgmental Jerk in Distress and Grow Towards Being a Beautiful Work in Progress. And by the way, I'm not calling any of you judgmental jerks. That's a title that has oftentimes been one I can take off the shelf and put on myself. All right? So just know, like, this idea of being a not versus an is be an anti versus a pro. And what I want to talk about is kind of the pH balance of uh, uh, positive affirmations about what's going on in the world versus negative affirmations. There's times to call out evil and systemic injustice, etc. But we need to keep the equation balanced or we die. Because frankly, I think we live in a, a neurotoxic, physiotoxic, uh, Numa spirit toxic, Numa toxic wor world in that this, just a couple examples is, it used to be uh, we could be in our little village somewhere and we would have a brain pan that could accommodate the tragedy that takes place in that village, a loss of a child, someone gets cancer, someone's barn burns down. But now we have the ability to watch live video of people being traumatized in the news in every place on the earth. And if you, you can doom scroll to the point where you just feel hopeless because our brain pan has not grown to accommodate the whole planet, not to, men not to mention everything that's happened in the past and the future. Now, uh, what I meant, like, my question for us is how can we pre be present to suffering, be address the pain of the world, but survive and be joyful at the same time, which I think the Sermon on the Mount really lays out a big manifesto of how we can embody Jesus in our life in such a way that we can not be naive, we can see life as it is and still have hope. And frankly, is that, that's a razor's edge to walk on. And part of this, what I've noticed in my life is when I try to engage issues, I often tend towards outrage. And we live in a culture where virtue has been equated with outrage. And ideally, the way you show yourself as a virtuous person is on your online profile or whatever, you call out other people that are doing wrong. Now, by the way, outrage 
there is a time for outrage. Jesus expressed outrage when they told, turned the temple, they took the one place in the Jewish temple where other cultures could come and explore and worship God and built a mini mall in the temple. And Jesus actually destroyed some furniture on that time. So there is a time for outrage. You know, uh, there's a, you know when, when our local constabulary uh, uh, murders Casey Goodson Jr., yeah, there's a time for outrage, but always on outrage, always on outrage is the enemy of awareness, in particular self-awareness. Always on outrage annihilates awareness. And we need to cultivate self-awareness in order to be healthy members of a community. In order to be healthy members of a community, it takes self-awareness to be able to engage in community awareness. And what happens is we only have, I like to think of ourselves, we have like a liter of soul goo. Everyone's got one liter of soul goo and we have eight cups of competence. And we can distribute that soul goo and everyone has, maybe if you're extraordinarily gifted in this area, you're really lame in that area. Or maybe you're kind of a little average in each area. Or maybe one area is overflowing and the rest you're helpless. Think of the genius that doesn't know how to uh, make breakfast. You know, those kind of things. But, uh, and that's great, as long as you're aware that these cups are empty, so I need to rely on other people for these cups. But we only have so much of ourselves to give to outrage, and we have to be very discerning in how to use that. Because, because in our culture, virtue, virtue is measured by outrage, and virtue, is truly this, Christian virtue is loving those who normally outrage you. Christian virtue is loving those that normally outrage you. And that means even seeing the greatest enemy of the people as someone who is a captive to evil. Seeing the greatest enemy of the people as someone who's captive to evil. And it's really hard to do that for bullies. I mean, this is heavy lifting for me. This is like building your soul density is lifting the weight of loving people who are bullies, right? Whether, you know, international bullies or neighborhood bullies or church bullies. It's really, hard. and sometimes you gotta love at a distance. There's a difference between love and like. I love a lot of people that I can only spend so much time with, right? God says love everyone, doesn't say like everyone. There's some people that maybe you can only have a certain amount of time for, right? Um, it just, you know, in your own soul care. So. I want to read a passage. Actually, I don't want to read. I want Helene to read it. Helene, you can make your way up. Uh, I want to read a passage from the Sermon on the Mount, or have read, that I want this ingrained on our souls in a practical way today. Alrighty. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged, for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite, first get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. So how you read this depends on what you believe about Jesus. Um, when I, a lot of my life, I imagine Jesus like, woe unto you, 
who seek to take the splinter out of your person's eye when you've got a log in your own eye, idiot. You know, like this idea like, but we, do we see Jesus as the always evaluating father that is looking for something to call us out because his paradigm is perfection? Do we see Jesus as like, the, you're a teacher and he's the principal in the backseat of the classroom taking notes on everything you're failing at? Or the teacher who's doing a 360 evaluation of you but is only looking for the bad stuff? Is like, if you feel like that is the Jesus, you read it that way. But it's important to know how to read a narrative. And as you read a whole narrative, oftentimes an overarching narrative creates the character you see, and then you read the narrative through the voice of that character sketch you've made of that person. And so one simple way that I use to kind of interpret how I read or how I hear Jesus' voice is this. One thing we know about Jesus is people that had fallen off the moral bandwagon in his culture, people who could have been stoned, like, you know, the, the Taliban did not invent stoning, all right? People that could be stoned, murdered in a rock pile by a judgmental crowd. In that culture, uh, uh, those uh, guilty of adultery or have lived, people of ill repute, people that it was dangerous to be around a religious influencer when you were this kind of person. These people sought out Jesus. Now, though Jesus was considered by many to be a rabbi, you literally have a woman trespass into someone else's house, not necessarily breaking and entering, but definitely going somewhere they're not welcome, just to see Jesus. You have an enemy of the people, Zacchaeus, climbing a tree and making a fool of himself just to see Jesus. So the more broken you were, the more safe you felt with Jesus. So I like to think, what kind of person do I feel safe around? What kind of person would make me feel like I'm in zero risk to pour out all my failures and insecurities and mental illness and whatever to? What kind of person would inspire me to unfettered authenticity? And then we go back, and through that lens, we read the teachings of Christ. And then I see Jesus kind of like doing a little comedy routine where he's like, guys, come on, guys. You're sitting there, you're trying to take a splinter out of your friend's eye, and you you've got this, you've got this plank in your eye. Come on, guys, this is, this is killing you. You know, like this, Jesus is in a winsome way inviting people to true life. And I believe that's how we need to read all of Jesus. Jesus was very winsome, and Jesus turned on the outrage when necessary Whereas people that have been maybe in an oppressive religious background have the always-on outrage, that they're always reading every Bible verse from an outrageous tone. And I would say that's a heresy of tonality. That's a heresy of tonality. If you do not hear, if you hear scriptures it, it, through the lens of an authoritarian, manipulative religious leader, even if they read it verbatim, you're getting it wrong because the person is getting in the way of the Spirit of God. Um, prioritizing splinter removal is often harmful to the one you're seeking to help or let's just presume good motives you want to help this person and you're going to take the splinter out of their eye a lot of times what you see on the outward of someone is just a symptom of something going on inwardly a lot of time what you can see on the outward of something when going wrong is a symptom of something internally and I wouldn't, go, I, I can't say this is true 100% of the time, but my experience has been 
God is a lot more, is patient, and thus he generally works at one thing at a time in our lives. God does not traffic in dump truck transformation. Well, here's the checklist of everything bad about you. You need to change now. God is like a home renovator that first spends time sitting in the house and figuring out the best way to restore this 200-year-old house to its original beauty. God's thinking, how do we go about preserving this woodwork? I mean, we could gut the whole place instantly, but we would lose all the character of the house. And God doesn't bulldoze us. God restores us because there is still vestiges of the goodness of God in every human being at any time. Some people through their lives seek to vandalize those vestiges and some people may have more than others. But the thing is, I don't believe in total depravity, which a lot of people, that's a mark of their theological belief. I believe in fractured beauty. Think in terms of damaged artwork being destroyed. It's still a tragedy that artwork is damaged. You want to you work towards restoration and care, but you don't just say it's all lost. If, by the way, if, God were a if a builder built a house and a, you just had a, the uh, slightest tremor, maybe crack the foundation and stuff, or crack part of the foundation you need to remedy, but if you had a tremor and the whole house fell down, you would be, it's not the house's problem, it's the bil builder's problem. It's not uh, the tremor's problem. It's the, if the builder cannot build a house that can't suffer one storm or one session of hail, then it's the builder's problem. But if the builder builds a house and you have a hailstorm, you say, well, we need to fix the roof. That's different. It's worth fixing the roof. But a lot of people think in these binary terms that once sin entered the world, that we are 100% lost causes. God cannot countenance to even look upon evil. I said, guys, read the story of God and the story of Jesus. Jesus is a pre professional looker at evil, er or looking at evil, or, or evil looker at her. That's right. Jesus is a professional evil looker at her. And when he looks at a person who he says, I love you. And if you have any other belief than that, well, that's just a different religion. I, I'm only really uh, able to talk about this one. But uh, the problem with splinter removal is it oftentimes doesn't c show a congruence with God's patience and kindness and gentleness and insight. Um, Connor, I, I'd like Connor to come up. I want to read this uh, passage. I want to make sure you get properly Bibled up today uh, in Eugene Peterson's uh, wonderful paraphrase here. Don't pick on people, jump on their failures, criticize their faults, unless, of course, you want the same treatment. That critical spirit has a way of boomeranging. It's easy to see a smudge on your neighbor's face and be oblivious to the ugly sneer on your own. Do you have the nerve to say, let me wash your face for you when your own face is distorted by contempt? It's this whole traveling roadshow mentality all over again, playing a holier-than-thou part instead of just living your part. Wipe that ugly sneer off your own face, and you might be fit to offer a washcloth to your neighbor. I like that. And by the way, you know a great way to do Bible study is read the passage several times and make your, and then close the Bible and just from memory try to make your own paraphrase of it. That way, that, that interaction with the scripture actually pierces deeper into your brain and your memory. And uh, it employ, because when you employ your imagination 
and you're reading, it goes the extra deal here. So prioritizing splinter removal not only is harmful possibly the person you have, but it can be harmful to you because that energy you're using to judge everyone around you could actually be used to cultivate self-awareness. By the way, I, this isn't like uh, somewhere I'm talking about like, this is not self-help, this isn't how to be your best self ever. This is actually for a community relating to God. You know, part of self-awareness builds community. It's not about having it all together on your own. It's being able to fit safely in a relationship with others. Um, and also, the main point is we don't know what we don't know. Who's familiar with the Dunning-Kruger effect? The Dunning-Kruger effect, oh my gosh, uh, is really uh, entered into the cultural lexicon as of late because uh, we've seen so much insanity over the past uh, several years that more people, and with the YouTube kind of dominating, everyone can find a persuasive expert who has every opinion on everything presented as fact. So you find something that aligns with you and you watch a bunch of videos and somehow you're an expert, right? And Dunning and Kruger effect, let me read this. It said, in 1999, Kruger and Dunning did a study looking at the phenomenon of illusory superiority. The title of their paper was Unaware, Unskilled and Unaware of It. How difficulties in recognizing one's own incompetence lead to inflated self-assessments. And the basic, the effect occurs when a person's lack of knowledge and skills in a certain area causes them to think they're competent. And the idea is the more wisdom you grow, the more you develop a it's complicated mindset. Or the more your knowledge of something grows, Ideally, the greater your curiosity becomes, the more curious you are. And I found this even, uh, the more, like, there's a certain level you think, like, oh, there's an illusion that if you study the Bible verse by verse and fully exegete it, you can master each book till you know the whole Bible. And I've had people tell me that, well, as a mature Christian, I've done, I said, well, if the Bible's living and active, you're talking about a butterfly with a pin on it and a piece of styrofoam that you can say everything about but you've killed the butterfly. So if the Bible is living and active, then interacting with that story is like a sponge that the water can never be brought out on. And no matter how many times you read any of the teachings of Jesus, there's always a fresh way for it to inspire you. Because the Bible is basically equipping us for Holy Spirit improv. The Bible is equipping us with Holy Spirit improv. What that means is you are so familiar with the story that no matter what life throws at you, you can improvise a Jesus-y response to what is happening. You, you, you get it till you have the stank of Jesus all over you. you. You have the aroma of Jesus. You know, if you eat curry all the time, your body odor is going to smell like curry. If you read the story of Jesus and ask it to transform your life and inspire you, eventually you're going to get the stank of Jesus all over you. Or I think in the Bible they call it the aroma of Christ. I like the stank of Jesus better. But uh, um, So here's a journey we can embark on um, when we, from starting to think we're equipped to evaluate others, a journey we can go on. Um, where we can escape this idea because dunning, taking the splinter out of someone's eye and ignoring the log in your eye is quintessential Dunning-Kruger effect. 
And you begin at the mountaintop of grandiosity, where I know everything, or I'm an expert, you know, or I really, when someone says, I'm a mature Christian. Now, if they could say, I'm a maturing Christian, like, that's kinetic, that's moving. The ing, the ing is very important. But I am a mature Christian, meaning I'm in this binary category of I having arrived. I, generally, by the way, everyone I've met who uses that term isn't really fun. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but this idea that I've arrived, it's like that's not the person you want to have on a play date, right? It, it's kind of depressing. But you, the, the mountaintop of grandiosity, and then you fall into failure from that mountaintop. And the opportunity there is to either blame someone else, rationalize it away, or repeat to yourself, apparently I don't know everything. Apparently I don't have it all together. And oftentimes that experience, either for a moment or a lifetime, can lead you to despair and shame. And ideally, you only visit that place. That's the rock bottom where you reach your hand up. And you develop a all is lost, all is lost, all coherence gone. Instead, you say, what now, God? What now? I'm ready. You reach out. I love all the Psalms where it says, I was sinking in the mud, and God picked me up by his right hand and pulled me out and set me on the rock. This idea, God is professional at rescuing us from the quicksand of shame. And then wisdom begins. You begin wisdoming. Maybe there's another way to approach life. And then uh, you can grow to the point where I can grow and mature, but it's a very complex journey. And the spiritually maturing, emotionally maturing, is generally a three steps forward, two steps backward, but the growth, it's, it's a net growth. If you really embrace transformation, you'll be like the disciples of Jesus who had these bursts of insight and then screwed it up. And that is winning. That is winning because we are fragile creatures, and for some reason, God is really into demonstrating his patience with us. And then you come to the realization there is no mountaintop. There is no mountaintop, only continued upward growth and maturity. Because the mountain, the mountain scriptures mentioned after the return of Christ, at when God sets all things aright, when justice rolls like a rushing river, that is called in the Old Testament the mountain of the Lord, where all people are welcome to be, or the, the tree that grows and takes over the whole earth and its branches spread out and every bird of the field gets to find rest in its branches. There is a mountain, the mountain ain't here yet, but we get to journey in a mountain climbing-ish journey that whole time. Just realize if, you realize, if you think you're at a peak or a plateau, you're on the wrong mountain. You're on the wrong mountain. So the very idea that we all have planks in our eyes presumes that we all have, and I love that it said I, because we're all blind. The very, to, to listen to Jesus' manifesto on the kingdom, how the kingdom works, is acknowledging no matter where I'm at, presuming I'm blind on an issue. Presuming I, no matter what I try to take, no matter what I try to swing at this passage, I'm still going to miss something. And it's not a shameful miss. It's a, hey, there's more. Keep on playing. 
type of mess. Um, and frankly, I would guess that all of us are experts on what annoys us. I, all of us could probably write papers on everything that annoys us in life. And some people make a living doing that. You know, some people do. Uh, I, I've read some, some writers that literally everything they write or post is about a new annoyance, and they use the most snarky, poetic, intellectual, uh, intellectually witty tone to destroy something they find is stupid. Now, and I, frankly, if I'm true, sometimes I'm really entertained by that. I just worry that they might aim their criticism at me someday and use their superpowers of criticism on me. You know, it's always good when it's aimed at someone else. But um, it's helpful to grow towards agnosticism regarding the faults of other and grow towards knowledge and clarity and wisdom of our faults. And by the way, faults are not static things. We can have a dynamic view of faults, meaning we can engage our faults and minimize them and grow. The, whole, the Sermon on the Mount, you'll hear some people say, well, that was for the church age, or no, that was for the apostolic age, or, but not the church age. Or what, I'm trying to remember, I used to know these charts by heart, you know, seven dispensations of God. Oh, it was, during, it was before the uh, ascension of Jesus, so this was an interim ethic for the disciples, but now it's there to show us, without, you can't do it, so forget it, accept Jesus as your Savior in these four spiritual rules, and then just be glad that you know something no one else does. But, the reality is, this or others, there's another version, they say this is the ethic of the millennial reign of Christ, but doesn't apply today. But generally people who've read Mortimer Adler's How to Read a Book will read this and say, oh, this is something we can progressively embody over our entire life more and more by the power of the Spirit. This is something, because the Sermon on the Mount isn't far from the ways the epistles are exhorting Christians to actually live in their day by day. And it's a progressive growth, it's not on or off. It's not a binary, it's a journey. And uh, many of us need to go through a period. You know, if you're detoxing off of salt or sugar, if you're trying to do like uh, kind of a dietary nutritional transformation, it's about 60 to 90 days of abstinence. You know, if you try to go off sugar, you eat a lot of salt. You try to go salt, you eat a lot of sugar. Generally it takes 60 to 90 days to actually break that neurological chain of that so you can reset and your taste buds get more easily impressed. You don't need as much salt to experience the savor because we become like that. Well, generally, if you abstain from criticism, and that doesn't mean not to be outraged by injustice, but take time to reset your discernment levels to know when outrage is the t tool you take out of your toolbox. And I had to do something like this, and part of it's coupled with depression is I, uh, listen to a lot of commentators. I do actually a lot of direct, like, watching camera feeds and news and guerrilla reporting in Ukraine or whatever. But I realized I need to take a time away from this so I can be more health, healthily present to it. And I ended up silencing everything. I mean, my YouTube feed is now pretty much uh, puppy videos and how-to videos and Star Wars commentary. I mean, I've, I've taken out all the, the meat and substance stuff just because I need a time to reset my own buds and I need to re-strengthen 
my personal self-awareness. And those of you, sometimes some of you just mean going off social media for 90 days or something. And just, re God, fill that mental capacity with self-awareness and humility. And it goes later on Colossians, it says, every day put on the clothing of humility. It's one of the things, like, literally, it isn't like be humble. It's like every day make a volitional choice to try to put on this coat of humility. Because, frankly, humility is something you re-up on every day. It's just not our default, but it is our happy place. Um, do you guys, anyone familiar with the beta region paradox? Anyone? Okay, I hope I don't bore you guys with this one, but it really was exciting for me to read about this. Um, the beta region paradox is this. It's a phenomenon where people can sometimes recover more quickly from more distressing experiences than from less distressing experiences. That if you have a severe trauma, sometimes your recovery can be quicker than recovery from a minor trauma. The, uh, the name originated from a paper by a guy named Daniel Gilbert and a bunch of his colleagues. And here's an example. For instance, injured people are more likely to seek out means to speed their recovery when the injury is severe. But for mild injuries, they're less likely to, proceed, to grab after every tool for healing. So minor injuries, we kind of grin and bear it. Severe injuries, it's like, get us taken care of. So you might actually, someone that has a sprained ankle may take longer to recover than someone that fractures their leg because they keep walking on the sprain and they develop a trick ankle and they walk with a limp for the rest of their lives because they never took care of it. Um, one of the examples they give is a commuter. Like, if you want to uh, go to, uh, I could say I want to go to Lithopolis, past Canal Winchester, it'll take me 22 to 28 minutes to drive there. So I'm going to take a car, there's no way I'm going to walk. But if I want to go to Cafe Kerouac, it's going to take me exactly 38 minutes to walk to Cafe Kerouac, but it's only a couple miles away. So I'll walk to Cafe Kerouac, but I'll drive to Lithopolis. So I, I, in my nature, is long trips are shorter than short trips are for me. Well, how does this apply to the passage? If we are aware of the logs in our own eyes, our transformation process is in high gear. Self-awareness isn't always living in the cesspool of I'm a failure, I suck, I this, I that. True, godly self-awareness is like, I've been resourced with this community, the support of community. I've been resourced with the Holy Spirit, with prayer, with scripture. I, I've been inspiration from the life of Jesus. I've been resourced to actually begin a transformation journey. This isn't about, you know, what's it, in a... Deus, Deus, Domine, Domine, Requiem. Anywhere see the Holy Grail, or is that too old of a cultural reference? Um, but most importantly, plank removal isn't just a thing people do. In fact, for some people, self-awareness is not safe. If you are at such a precipice where life is so fragile, you've been through so much trauma, just having revelations of all your faults can be very dangerous. Self-awareness is not always safe. In fact, I would say yeah, the where transformation and self-awareness truly work is when you are self-aware before the person of Jesus. Remember I was talking about Jesus 
carry himself and presented his even his polarizing teachers in such a way that the most broken felt safer than anyone else did with Jesus. And sometimes we have to use our imagination to remind ourselves by the power of spirit of who this Jesus is where before. He's not a disappointed or distant father. He's a guy who you just can't, you can't outrun his patience. And I think in the person of Jesus is someone that you naturally, you don't even know why you're, you pour out where you're broken and say, Jesus, into your hands I commend my spirit. When you say, Jesus, I can't do this without you. Or I love the guy that approached Jesus, Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. You know, faith, faith is not certitude, by the way. And actually, uh, uh, one translation in Hebrews, faith is uh, assurance of things unseen or it's being certain of things unseen. Certainty, as we define it, that concept's only existed since the Enlightenment, all right? If you want to talk about assurance, different certainty and assurance is that my kid falls down and scrapes their knee up. Uh, certainty is them saying, this is guaranteed to heal and I don't need to feel any pain right now. Assurance is daddy picking up their child. Oh, honey, it's going to be okay. I love you. This hurts. Let, let me clean this up for you. I'm so sorry. Assurance is a relational term. Assurance is knowing you're loved. Certainty is being the expert. The, uh, I, I don't think that what we call about the modernistic certainty, proving everything. God doesn't need you to be 100% epistemologically, intellectually certain of every truth of the Bible. Faith is, faith is actually saying, I know enough to respond relationally. We can have friendships with people we don't know 100% about them. We can befriend and grow in relationship with someone that we don't 100%, when we're not 100% certain that we can trust them. I mean, you're never 100% certain you can trust anyone, but people still get married. And a lot of times, because someone's not trustworthy, it doesn't work out. But we have this level of trustworthiness where we can engage in relationships. So you may have a little trustworthiness of Jesus. You may have a lot of trust in Jesus. But both people can have an equally vigorous spiritual life growing towards Jesus. Let's stand. I had the worship team and communion folks and all that coming forward. Friends. Surrender to Jesus is not an intellectual checklist. Surrender to Jesus is something we're invited to do. It's not something we're manipulated to do. It's not something we're argued into doing. Because it's a relational dynamic where we say, God, I can't do it. It's where we say, God, I've fallen short. You know, uh, the words, you know, I've sinned against you. One way to talk about sin is all our past, present, and future failures, even our best intentions that blew up in our face, things that did not measure up. God, I give those to you and ask your forgiveness to inhabit me. Jesus, be my Lord. And that means that's actually a really title vested with lots of power. Jesus, I'm giving you the reins of my life. I want to be your protege, your disciple. I want to be your apprentice. I want to learn to be present in this world. Jesus, make me into that person 
like you were, that people who are hurting feel safe around. Let me be like you. Let me have your aroma. And what we do, oftentimes, it begins with a simple prayer. I'll pray right now. It's like, Jesus Christ, I give you my life. All that it is, all that it isn't, ask you to inhabit me, fill me with your spirit, and make me the hands, feet, and mouthpiece of your love to a suffering world. I give you my life. I choose to follow you. I receive all your forgiveness forever. Amen. Um, we're getting ready to share communion. This is something, you know, there you know, if you get three Christian theologians in the room, you get four different opinions. And, but the one thing that unites the entire church is everyone has a way of doing this. They don't agree exactly what it means. Personally, I think engaging it is more important than understanding it. Basically, it's a remix of the Passover, a Jewish holiday where it was for the Jewish people. And Jesus took a Jewish holiday for the Jewish people and said, we're going to make this the global holiday for all people. He took... A, the bread at this Passover, he broke it, and then he redefined. He said, this is my body that's broken for you. I'm going to be broken in your stead. I'm going to take all the evil and oppression and hardship in the world upon my shoulders and exhaust it for you. He continued out their Passover feast, and after the Passover, he took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant, or new paradigm of living will that's the way to understand that this cup is the new way to exist on this planet in this life every time you drink it remember it. drink it remembers me jesus said this is my body and this is my blood and this is and we do this every week because we believe just this kinesthetic mystical awareness somehow i talk about eating jesus till you have the stank of jesus eating the story of jesus this is like taking in jesus symbolic that we want our life to be built up with the nutrients of his presence so lord i ask your real presence on these elements come holy spirit so we're going to sing a song confession if you don't believe the first line of this song don't sing the rest of it it could be damaging if it doesn't begin with god's mercy don't try this at home we're going to sing this, ask you to come up and take communion. And uh, if you want prayer, please stay up. When we have some prayer folks, go to the sides. And after everyone else gets, you give them communion. But we want to pray for you. If God has tugged on your heart, either with one pound of pressure or a hundred pounds of pressure, if God has tugged on your heart, receive prayer and just confess that to someone else and have them pray for you. We're not counselors, but we're good at solidarity. Lord bless you.